Thanks, everybody, for coming. It's great to have so many visitors here today. To, to, I know most of you probably come to see uh, the baptisms and, and everyone else welcome. It's great to have you. We are, um, on our first Sunday of the month, we do a shorter meditation on the book of Ecclesiastes. We're usually in the Gospel of John. Uh, and so today we're going to, uh, but today being it's the first Sunday, we're going to restart or retake up where we left off last week and starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is a fantastic book for our time. It's almost, uh, you could almost, if you read it with understanding, you, you, you could say, you could say you, it looks like it was almost something written uh, in, as a refutation of modern human philosophy in every way that seeks to find happiness under the sun outside of God and how badly it fails. Um, so we're in a good part of the book today where our, uh, God, our, uh, the, the writer, Solomon, Kohelet, the preacher, more likely the pastor is the name that he goes by in this book, is going to teach us uh, some amazing things about God and about what that means for us. So could I ask you to please stand one more time as we pay careful attention to God's word and as we pray first for his, the, the spirit of God to illuminate our hearts and minds to it. Lord, Lord, we thank you for all these blessings today. Again, we thank you for your word, which is powerful. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through it. We know that your word is living and active and powerful and that when it is preached, as, as long as it is in accordance with your word, it is the word of God for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would show us, teach us, illuminate our minds to these beautiful words about who you are and who we are and what you've done for us, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. This is God's inerrant word from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people may fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So maybe I remember a story we told, I told you a while ago that our, our neighbors on one side burned our fence down. 
they got, they, they were having a party in the backyard and things got a little carried away in the, 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 uh, the bonfire. We woke up in the morning and there was like an eight foot gap hole in our fence just smoldering. And the, the neighbors out there looking at it like this. <laughs> what happened? I'll, well, we can tell you, we can tell you what happened. Anyways, they fixed the fence, and so this morning, we, or yesterday morning, we woke up again, and there's this giant gape, gaping hole in the fence above our house, and uh, you know, we had in our backyard, before that, our kids like to play in the backyard, they especially like to play up on this top part of our yard where the, where the fence is now missing, and before that, yesterday, the day before that happened, we had control, we had boundaries, we had a barrier, a foundation barrier around our house that kept our kids safe. It provided them everything they needed. There was a lot of play. There was a lot of fun things to do. Just, just dangerous enough to be fun, but not dangerous enough for um, them to be really hurt. It was safe. And now that this fence is gone, the neighbors tore down the fence. Now the fence is gone. The barrier is gone. And our, our, honestly, our kids love it. They like, think this is the greatest thing ever because there's no, there's no fence. There's no barrier. They can go straight from our backyard to the street through the backyard of the other people's and onto the street. And, and also, unfortunately with that, means that people could come in and grab them, and they love it. But the decisions that a five-year-old makes when he has that kind of freedom aren't necessarily going to be the best ones. <laughs> Especially my oldest daughter. <laughs> now, as Americans, we love the idea of freedom. It's Fourth of July weekend. Um, and we have level elevated freedom personally uh, to the status of, of what we believe freedom is in, in many ways as American Western Christians means no control over us at all. And that's what freedom means and that's what we need and that's what's good. But the problem with that is though, much like five-year-olds, if we had absolute freedom to do whatever we wanted to do and there were no boundaries around us whatsoever, we would most likely make very bad decisions that would end up hurting us. And so in the universe that God has constructed, in his ultimate wisdom and his knowledge and, uh, and his power and his omniscience and everything that God has as God, he has set up a universe where he maintains control, but in a, in a way that blesses us. And that's the big idea that Solomon's trying to get across in this, in this, uh, in this passage today. The big idea, the thesis statement one thing he wants us to know more than anything is this, is that God, our Father, is in control, making all things beautiful. So trust him and enjoy life. Let me say that one more time. God, our Father, is in control, making all things beautiful. So trust him and enjoy life. The first part of that, God, our Father, is in control of all things. Now, we, we need to st- understand this poem. We have to start from the backside and work and then, st- and then read the poem first. We need to recontextualize ourselves from 21st century Americans to 1st century Hebrews because Hebrews in a large way, in a large part, had a very different idea of God than we do as American Christians. Um, we are very, our emphasis on relationship has led us to uh, have an idea of God that is actually much less than what God really is. When we think of relationship, what do we think of? We think of, for most of you younger people, you think of girlfriend, boyfriend, warm, fuzzy. Uh, and it's true, we do have a relationship with God, but relationship's a much broader category than just boyfriend, girlfriend, warm, and fuzzy. We all have many relationships that we don't really think of. 
Um, and so in order to get this, we need to back up and take a look at what did, he, what, what did the Hebrew audience assume when they were reading this. And let's start with what Solomon tells us about God right here. Look at verse thir- uh, three fourteen. The first part of, part of it, he says, I received that whatever, I, re- I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. In other words, the overarching master plan of God is set, and it's been set from eternity, and there's nothing that we humans can do to change that master plan of God. In verse 315, he says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which has been driven away. NIV, I think, hits this a little bit better than the ESV. They say, uh, God calls back the past. This is a Super confusing verse in the original languages. That last verse it really literally means, and God seeks the one who has been pursued or persecuted, but it doesn't really fit into the context. So honestly, nobody, if you read, a, if you read 10 commentaries, you get 12 opinions on what this means, especially that last line. I think the best way to look at it, though, is in one sense... It's telling us that God controls all these cycles of life on earth. There's, there's cycles of life from the subatomic level to the galactic level, and all of those are controlled by God over and over again. But I think it also means, my, 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 this is what I think. I think as much as it's talking about how God is recycling things throughout history and that there's nothing new under the sun, I think it also is speaking in some way about the mind of God that in God's mind, everything that which has already been, that which is has already been, and that which is to be already has been, all encompassed in God's mind. And God seeks or God calls back the past or pursues the past in such a way that in the mind of God, all things are present here and now in, in the way that theologians talk about God knowing all things in one giant cognitive sweep so that he has absolute perfect knowledge of all things. So, so far we know that God, everything that God does happens, and there's no stopping it. We know that God knows all things with perfect, absolute knowledge. The question is, is this comprehensive? Does this only apply to those things which God does? Or does this apply to everything that happens in the world? And to that, we need to go outside and, and, and fill this out with, from the book of Isaiah. And this is I'm going to read you my favorite, I think probably my favorite verse from the book of Isaiah. I, I probably say that a lot because there's a lot of good ones in there. But this is Isaiah 45, 6 through 7. And I love it because of how challenging it is. This one just smacks us on the side of the head as American Christians. And Isaiah says this. This is quoting God. This is the Lord speaking. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now that's kind of a hard uh, saying. That's saying that it's not just those things that God does separated from all human activity. It's saying that everything that happens, calamity, the good, the bad, all of it is being brought about by this omniscient, omnipotent, eternal power of God. And the last piece of the puzzle is this. It says, he says in verse 11b, he says, also God has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. In other words, we have 
we've been given the, the ability to grasp the concept of eternity without the ability to experience it. In other words, we can understand, we can apprehend, Hank Hanegraaff used to say this all the time, we can apprehend these giant, majestic, uh, in, in, un, unspeakable things about God. We can grasp them in our minds, but in such a way that they show us how finite and how small we actually are in the face of God's holiness and perfection and power and majesty. So the picture is one of this God of incomprehensible power who's in perfect control of all things, the good, the bad. Everything comes filtered through the hands of this overarching, supreme, sovereign God. Now, what are we supposed to get out of that? Fortunately, he tells us. Verse 14, God has done it. In other words, let us in on, uh, let us in on, on this knowledge. God has done it so that people would fear before him. Fear God. So that we would fear God. I have a friend who who categorically rejects Christianity because of this concept of fearing God. He thinks it's the most patently self-evident, absurd thing that he has ever heard in his life. why, Why would anyone fear God? God is love, and therefore that means that God just unconditionally loves and there's no reason to fear God whatsoever. And coming from his foundational beliefs as man being the king of the universe, that makes quite a bit of sense. But, um, you know, in our, in, in our culture, God is the genie who greases the wheel of the universe in our favor. And ultimately, that's pretty much it. He's the pinch hitter we call in. He's the grandfather when we need some money. He's the guy we call in when we need a little extra supernatural help. Certainly not anything to be afraid of. But what this passage is doing, telling us, is that there is a sense where we should be having a fear of the Lord. And there's two ways we can take that. The first is, uh, is it's just a straight-up translation of that word fear. Phobos means fear or terror. Uh, if you ever notice in the Bible, whenever someone comes face to face with a holy angel, the first thing they do isn't go, wow, that's beautiful. They hit the deck. They hit the deck because they're terrified in the presence of and in the contrast of absolute perfection and holiness, all of a sudden we see who we are and we're afraid and we hit the deck. And so on one sense, there is this fear of the Lord that is meant to shake us out of our dream and realize who it is that we're shaking our fist at as unbelievers. I used to have snakes, and I used to breed snakes, and so we'd feed them mice. And one time I put this mouse in the cage, and this was a very brave mouse. The, the snake just didn't happen to be hungry, and so the mouse would go up, and he would bite the tail. He would bite the tail of the snake, and, and thinking that he was just the mouse king. <laughs> Until one day... Snake was wondering what was for lunch, and Mouse King bit his tail and pow, hit him so fast. The mouse learned that there was a supreme power in the universe of that tank, and he was not it. 
And so in one sense, this fear of the Lord is to shake us out of our, our, our lethargy, out of our slumber, to show us that there is this powerfully, incomprehensibly powerful God to see the snake, to be afraid out of God's mercy so that we would turn from our sin and turn to him. But there's another sense of this fear of the Lord and the sense of, uh, of, res- of, of not terror, but without diminishing any of these terrifying aspects, we remember that this is the same God who created the universe, who created all this power, but this very same God is the same God who has invited us to call him Father. And so we have that sense of, of reverence and that sense of awe and that sense of holiness but we also, without losing that, we realize that this God has called us into relationship with him as sons and daughters, and that he is our father that is protecting us, giving us security, blessing us, disciplining us, doing what is right for us from his perspective. What does a good father do? A good father disciplines their children in love. Oh, if I start telling stories about disciplining and love this week, we'll run out of time. Um, what does a perfect father do? A perfect father disciplines in perfect love. And that's what God does for us. So now that we've seen, now we've got a, a much more Hebraic, first century Hebrew understanding of who God is. He's not our buddy. Uh, he's not somebody we go to cry to. He is the omnipotent God, creator God of the universe. We are his creatures, but he has called us into relationship with him through his son. Now we can look at the poem. Uh, we can look at the poem. God our Father is in control to making all things beautiful. Making all things beautiful. You know, the birds made this this poem famous, right? When their song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Actually, another guy wrote it. I learned that today from a guy in the 50s wrote this song. It's almost line, the song itself is almost line for line, uh, 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 Ecclesiastes 3. Almost no words were changed. He changed six words in the whole poem for the song, and for that he got all those royalties. <laughs> but, um, you know, what it is, it's, uh, it has seven parts to it that are t- uh, double verses, seven parts to the poem representing the completeness of the totality of everything that we experience here as human beings under the sun. And the birds carried on in the long-standing tradition of misinterpreting this poem to mean things that people do when it really doesn't mean that at all. Let's read it. Um, Let's read it again. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And at the end of it, he makes this shocking statement. He's made all things beautiful in its time. 
Now, here's what this is saying. It's not saying this is, these are the, 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 uh, this is the list of general things that people do on earth. He's saying that these are the things that God has decreed for us. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't... I would prefer a different list, right? I mean, I like, you know, it's really, if you look at it, it's the extreme, one to the other. And I like, there's column A, there's column B. I like being born, I like planting, I like healing, I like building up. I like laughing, I like to dance. I'd like to gather stones together, I like embracing. I'd rather seek than lose, I'd rather keep than cast away, I'd rather sow than tear, I'd rather speak than be silent, and I'd rather love than hate, and I'd certainly rather uh, have peace than war. I want column A. I don't want column B so much. And we live in a, col- we live in a culture that believes that, um, that if, some- if, col- if something in column B is happening in your life, something's wrong. That's just necessarily bad. And that may be true. There's lots of things that cause suffering and chaos in our lives. It may be... Um, you know, maybe you made some really bad decisions and you're suffering the consequence of that. Maybe your sinful actions are causing consequences in your life that you don't like. Um, but even if it is those things, um, those, are, those things are from God and he's going to use, he is using them to bring goodness and beauty. He, you may be suffering in trial for no reason other than the fact that God has brought you into suffering and trial. Now, no, we don't like that. How could that be beautiful? One of my favorite movies is uh, Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory. I love the old version. I just got the Johnny Depp version. It's astonishingly good. Um, You know, I forgot when I was a kid how terrified I was of Oompa Loompas. And so I got my kids together Hannah's five and Tori's four and Robbie's two and we're watching this movie and like, you know, 15 minutes into it, Tori is sheet white, screaming in terror. Hannah's hiding under the couch. I'm like, what's wrong? It's Willy Wonka. I mean, we've watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre and she didn't do that, you know? I mean, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Hyperbole. She's freaking out. My wife is going, it's not age appropriate. It's, and, uh, and, uh, so we had to turn it off. But what, you know, what's the storyline? The storyline are these, all these awful kids that come to the... the Willy Wonka is giving away his, his chocolate factory and they all are going to get golden tickets. And so there's Augustus Gloop um, who is just greedy, gluttonous, spoiled, rotten. There's Violet Beauregard. She's vain, self-centered, violently competitive. There's Veruca Salt. She's immature, brutally manipulative, extremely selfish, and she gets every single thing she wants, no matter how ridiculous or outrageous. She gets everything good. Nothing bad has ever happened to her. Daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa, and I want one right now. (laughs) And what happened to these kids, right? They got everything good. Nothing bad happened to them, and they just turned spoiled, awful, rotten. But Charlie... What about Charlie? Charlie's grown up in poverty. He's grown up in hardship. He's known, he's known suffering and pain his whole life. And at the end of the story, he's got the everlasting gobstopper. The contract says they're not allowed to take anything out. And he takes it out of his mouth and he puts it on the desk and says, thank you, Mr. Wonka. He walks out and he wins. because what does Charlie have? What did all that give him? All that hardship, it gave him character. 
It was producing character in him, which then is the, is the thing that produces joy even in the midst of hardship. So I get it. I mean, I want column A, but God wants something better for us. He wants the mixture of column A and column B according to his perfect will because he wants to grow us in our character so that we can be blessed and we can be a blessing. Even in the hardships, even in the difficult times, all of it is God's blessing on top of us and giving it to us. We want Augustus Gloop. God wants Charlie for us to give us character, to develop virtue so that we would have happiness and that we would be a blessing in it, no matter what our circumstances are. And what a better way to say and describe this in the providence of God than saying that this is making all things beautiful in its time. Um, But this is not just about building our character. There's something even more beautiful in the times and the seasons that God has laid out in the history of the world. The history of the world that we see in the Bible is this history of salvation. We call it redemptive history. And there are certain appointed times that are the clock of the cosmos. The planets themselves spin as a giant, massive time clock, clicking off minutes in the history of redemption as God works out his plan and creates things in history at the perfect time to bring about the centerpiece in history. Listen to these verses about the times. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. That verse is packed with spicy goodness. When he says fullness of time, he's talking about the history of the world, the Roman peace, the the roads that made travel possible, uh, the Greek language that had spread across the world, making one tongue so that the gospel could go out in power. At the perfect time, Christ was born under the law so that he could come and redeem us. Here's another one. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ's death and resurrection was a testimony to the world given at the exact moment, at the exact time, to show God's glory, to bring redemption to his people. And so at the perfect time, according to God's perfect decree, Christ died. Here's the last one. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. For he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Did you hear that? Our faith is God's power guarding us. through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, the eschaton, the final time where all things are brought into perfection. And so at the perfect time, according to God's perfect decree, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's 
how should we respond to all this? I mean, these are big, giant concepts. God, our Father, is in control of all things, making all things beautiful. Our response should be trust him and enjoy life. What does that mean? It's two big applications of this passage for us. The first is to trust him. Some of you just need to straight up, uh, I don't know how many, uh, there's a lot of visitors here today, I don't know anyone. Some of you may just need to straight up trust Jesus for salvation. To dump whatever it is that you're trusting in, your money, your good looks, your health, uh, your reason, your wit, your sharp mind, uh, your favorite professor in college, whatever it may be that you are trusting in, those things will fail you. Some of us, some of you need to just trust in Jesus, in his perfect sacrifice for our sins, in his perfect life, and in his resurrection from the dead, like Brandon did today. Fantastic. But for all of us, here's what this means. What this means is that you need to stop second-guessing God. You need to stop second-guessing God. Just think about this. Think about who God is. Uh, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, unlimited power, proven goodness through the cross on your behalf. He absolutely has proven that he loves you. Those are his qualifications to guide your life. Now, how about you? Does anyone here have a crystal ball? They don't work anyways. But if anyone here can see the future, see the... God has perfect command of all time and space. How many of you guys can tell me what you had for lunch last Thursday? And you want to be the ones dictating time and space and eternity? How many of you have uh, ultimate wisdom? The ability to use your knowledge to achieve good results according to the reality that we live in. Who here has perfect wisdom? Think of some of the decisions that you've made. You don't even have your own best interest in mind, much less anyone else's, honestly. But God proves he does. Perfect wisdom. Do you have power to make things happen? God does. So, you know, we need to stop saying this wasn't supposed to happen. Yes, it was. We need to stop saying I wasn't supposed to be here. Yes, you were. Everything, and this is, this is a mind-blowing truth, but what the Christian Bible says, what the Bible says to us is that the situation that you're in right now has been perfectly engineered by God for you, for your good. The hard stuff and the good stuff. The blessing and the calamity. I am the Lord. I bring all these things for your good and your blessing. So we need to stop saying, why me? And start saying, what does God have for me in this? What's the lesson I need to learn 
How is he trying to bless me and sharpen my character through this? In all things good, all things bad, we praise the name of the Lord. Amen? And this is, you know, honestly, this is the essence of Christian maturity. It's not being able to preach well. It's not theological knowledge. It's not being able to speak seemingly eloquent words of wisdom. A lot of guys can preach. A lot of people know theology better uh, inside and out. A lot of people can speak and can talk a good game. But if they don't, if that, when, the, when the rubber hits the road, if they, they don't trust God with their whole hearts, that is not Christian maturity. That is um, fronting. <laughs> what that is. Anything else we're supposed to do in the midst of all this uh, that God is doing? What are we supposed to do? What is the ultimate response that God wants from us? Here it is. God wants us, he wants you to enjoy life. Does that surprise you? Are we supposed to be sitting in sackcloth and ashes? throwing dust on our heads, flagellating ourselves with whips, maybe. As God has blessed us, as God has blessed you, as God has allowed, he wants you to enjoy life with the simple, beautiful, God-given pleasures and gifts that he has given all of us. You know, instead of being angry and frustrated at God for not giving you your violent Beauregard plan for life. He wants you to be grateful for the blessings that we do have. He wants us to enjoy a day at the beach with friends. He wants us to cook dinner for your family and have a good time. He wants you to share a glass of wine around the fireplace with people you love. He wants you to work towards the building of virtue in your life, which is going to produce the freedom of blessing. I want you to be amazed that God is baptizing people into his church family. Enjoy some great carne asada with your church. And each day we want you to praise God who orders every aspect of our lives for our good and for his glory and to do it knowing that in the good and the bad, we are doing it knowing in certainty that the Lord is going to return and take all of this vanity and replace it with a new and perfect world where we will be with him enjoying all of his blessing and goodness forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your amazing word, for the blessing it is to us. Lord, some of us have not been able to enjoy life because we've been angry at you. We have faxed you our plan for life and we have asked you to co-sign it and send it back and you did not do it and we are mad, mad, mad. Lord, some of us have spent hours and days praying for things that would ultimately be to our detriment and you haven't given them to us in your mercy and we are mad, mad, mad at you. Lord, some of us have just been sold on things in the world that are promising to make us happy uh, and we've gone after them 
And although at first they can be exciting, they are not joyful. And they soon show themselves to be traps. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you are perfect in your wisdom and knowledge and patience and beauty and that you are uniquely suited to be the captain of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage uh, and the wisdom and the knowledge to just trust you, Lord, to relinquish our desire to be the God of the universe and to run the show, to trust you with everything in our lives, to receive everything from you, the good and the bad, as blessing and grateful for it, and to enjoy life with the beautiful, simple things that you have given us. Lord, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake so that we might be light and salt in the world. Amen.